and we are live uh good evening and good day everybody welcome to the 31st live episode of ask abhijit today we talk about education i take your questions and answer them and before we get into it let me take a look at who all is there so i can see dharmendra das hello good evening jyoti patel good evening harshada tathagat yusuf bobby tathagat prithvi vaishali Mandeep, Divesh, Ranveer Singh Yadav, Van Sharma, Cherry, Ishan, Bardwaj, Lokesh, Aswal. Hi, good evening, good day, everybody. It's great to see you all. So let's get into the questions. I have a lot of questions that I'm going to answer tonight. So let's start with question number one. And question number one is by Keshav. How do you suggest we make the Sanskrit language of our national language when people of different states will object to it? And over 99% of Indians don't understand the, the Sanskrit language. So this is a very common question that most Indians don't understand Sanskrit. It's going to be a lot of hard work to learn this new language. Well, you know what? The truth is that Sanskrit is our matrubhasha. When I say the term matrubhasha, what language is it? Matrubhasha. We all understand this term, Matrubhasha. It's a Sanskrit term, right? When I say the, the, the term uh, Rashtrahit, everybody understands that. That is Sanskrit. When you say Bharat Mata, that is Sanskrit. When you say Akhand Bharat, that is Sanskrit. Your name, Keshav, is a Sanskrit name. My name, Abhijit, is a Sanskrit name. We use Sanskrit every single day. We use Sanskrit vocabulary. We use Sanskrit terminology. Sanskrit is embedded in our lives and we simply don't realize it. Sanskrit is our mother tongue. It is our civilizational language. It is the mother tongue of our mother tongues. Whether you speak any language in India, you will have plenty of Sanskrit vocabulary in it. So Sanskrit is the foundation of India's culture and civilization. Whenever India was unified as one entire political entity, it, in Sanskrit has always been at the, at the forefront of India's culture and civilization. And even when India was fragmented, even today, we don't realize it, but Sanskrit is at the at the core of our existence and communication. But we simply don't understand it. We simply don't realize it. 99% of people in India don't understand Sanskrit. This is what we believe. And it's not in it is not the case. So we need to look beyond our what what uh, beyond our conditioning, the conditioning that our education system has given us. Many of us, I know that we take the Sanskrit language as one of the one of the subjects in our education and the way it is taught is so painful that it feels like it's some alien language the way they it's just the way it is taught it's not really that difficult a language to learn it's the one of the easiest and most logical languages to learn and yet we we grow up and we live with these misunderstandings so so the fact is that sanskrit is our mother tongue, whether we realize it or not, we simply have to get back in touch with it. So that's uh, the answer to your second question. I'll get back to your first question soon. Okay, uh, we know that many travelers came to ancient India from China, from Middle East, Europe, etc. Then how did they communicate with us? Since our language is completely different from them, so let me demonstrate to you how these foreign people, foreigners, communicated with us. I'm going to show you a very short clip. Take a look. What's that? 
So that's a clip from a Chinese movie. It's about the life of the great Chinese monk Xuanzang who came to India to gain knowledge. Most people who came to India from other countries came either to gain knowledge or they came to trade with India to engage in commercial activities. And they all spoke the lingua franca of India, which was Sanskrit. They all learned Sanskrit. Sanskrit was the highest civilizational language in the entire known universe. When India was a free nation, it was a free culture, it was before the past 1000 years of, of the invasions. Sanskrit was the highest language of culture throughout Asia. Sanskrit was spoken and various Sanskrit-derived languages were spoken throughout Central Asia, in, in the northern part, beyond the Himalayas, north of the Himalayas, which is now part of China. It was never earlier part of China, etc. And the Chinese communicated with our people in our language, Sanskrit. And our people went there, our, our scholars went there and translated the Sanskrit text into Chinese. And that's how Buddhism entered China and it's become an integral part of China. It's there even today. China has the largest Buddhist population in the world. And this Buddhism, so to say, it incorporates the worship of many Indian gods. So that's the point. China, the Chinese and, and the Scythians and the Greeks, they all learned Sanskrit and that's how they communicated with us. So that is the value of Sanskrit, my friends. I keep saying that Sanskrit needs to be our civilizational language. There's a reason for it. It was the greatest language in the world. It was adopted widely. And we need to bring the status back. For example, in China, the ancient word for India in China was Tianzhu, which means the center of heaven. That was India's status in the past. And today, unfortunately, for no fault of our own, our education system imbues us with this slave mentality, this inferiority complex that, yeah, yeah, we are, we are inferior and, and the West is better or the Chinese are better, etc., we are historically the greatest civilization in the history of the of the in the in the known history of the world. So we need to regain that status, and we need to take steps to do that. So that's the entire, and th that is where you talk about education reforms. But because that is the core of the matter. So I hope that answers this question. Richik asks. What about the South Indians who love English so much that they will riot if you try to replace it with Sanskrit? And Prince Agarwal asks, your ideas are great, but how can we replace English with Sanskrit without conflict in the modern, in, in, in the Indian state? So you guys are right. There's a great deal of resistance to change. Uh, right now, as of today, in southern India, especially in places like Tamil Nadu and Kerala, there is this great resistance and hatred towards Sanskrit and towards Hinduism because it is it is not the fault of the people of the, the of these states that they have this attitude towards Sanskrit and towards Indian culture and Hinduism as a whole and they have this chauvinistic supremacist mindset that Tamil is superior to Sanskrit etc and there is this language war which came first Sanskrit came or Tamil came first etc all of this is the consequence of decades of chauvinistic and, and separatist politics. See, politics is all about creating divisions. 
politics is all about creating divisions and exploiting this, those divisions creating the sense of persecution creating a siege mentality and exploiting that by saying that we are going to save you we are the only saviors we are going to restore your pride we are going to restore your dignity you have been enslaved for thousands of years by brahminical patriarchy and sanskritization and these white skinned north indians and these aryans and we dravidians are actually older and all that so this is all political narratives india has always been one but because of the past 6 7 decades of this chauvinistic separatist politics that's why and which has seeped through into education media everywhere that's why the people of a couple of southern states they have this attitude and they they have this belief through no fault of their own i have been to tamil nadu the people are are wonderful lovely people very nice people the friendliest people but they all have this attitude because they genuinely believe that they have been persecuted and their and their culture is different and separate and all that so what needs to happen you are right there is going to be resistance there there is going to be resistance if we try to re, uh, revise and reform the system and make sanskrit the national language there is going to be resistance so what's the solution the solution is the right leadership see if you look at that's that's the reason why we have to study history because if we study history we can find solutions whenever india has been unified as one entire single civilizational and political entity it's always been because there was a great superhero of a leader who was able to unify this country this country is very complex it's very diverse there's a great deal of plurality there's a great deal of apparent dissimilarity in culture and language and so many things and yet it has one culture and civilization overall but to unify it properly you need a leader of of a great stature and that sort of leader doesn't come across we don't we don't find such leaders very often it's usually somebody who comes along once in a century or maybe even once in a millennium right or once in 500 years so we are for the past 1000 years waiting for a leader of that sort of stature you know the like the old chakravarti samrats like chandragupta maurya or 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 the great samudragupta or rajaraja chola or even somebody like shivaji maharaj so we need somebody of that stature today's politicians are pygmies compared to that right so it will take somebody of almost superhuman fortitude and stature and will power to unify the country and when a leader like that comes when such a leader emerges in this country despite the mediocre political system and all the resistance then only will that person be able to unify the country and unify the country civilizationally culturally linguistically etc so so declaring sanskrit the national language is doesn't mean that we're going to destroy the other languages i am talking about a two language formula every child should learn two languages the civilizational language sanskrit and the mother tongue both should be given equal importance there is no question of any supremacy but this can only be done when you have a leader of enormous will power and fortitude and only then will this happen so th- that's what we need in this country we need genuine leadership we don't need politicians politicians think short term they li- they think 5 years at a time and they think about being popular popularity popularity is essential to success in politics in leadership see the difference between politicians and leaders is this politicians will not succeed unless they are popular so they have to take populist measures leaders will fail at leadership unless they take deeply unpopular decisions for the long term good 
So that's why our system is designed to churn out mediocre leaders, fake leaders, politicians. So that's what India needs. India needs change, change, significant, deep, revolutionary, reformative change. I'm not talking about a, about a re revolution in the Marxist sense. No, I abhor that. India needs reforms, but revolutionary reforms. Proper, non-violent reforms that strengthen the country, not divide it or fragment it. That's what's needed. Manoj asks, uh, Manoj says, my wife did a diploma in information technology from a government polytechnic college. Company, companies hire only degree holders and not diploma holders. Why have they started this diploma education? You bring up an excellent point, Manoj. This is infuriating. Why do they give, why do they, why do they offer degrees or diplomas that have no value? They are fooling people. The education system has become a commercial education system. It's all about making money. Fool the people. Okay, you don't want a two-year degree, three-year degree. Get a one-year diploma. But at the end of the day, after you get the piece of paper in your hand and you go out of the job market, you find it has no value. They are fooling people. They should, there should be a law that, that debars universities, colleges, educational institutions from offering degrees or diplomas or any certificate which doesn't have any real real life real world value so this is a scam i said i said in the previous episode episode 30 that the indian education system is a scam it is a scam that leeches of the people of india it gives you degrees in exchange for cash and time you have to spend two years three years slaving away and performing certain rituals and if you perform those rituals correctly and if you if you pay the right amount of money then they will give you a piece of paper that will basically be your passport to hopefully getting some kind of a job. It's a goddamn scam and it needs to stop. These people need to stop fooling the nation. Om asks, what reforms need to take place so that we can create more jobs? Look, what is a job? It's, it's a, some kind of service that you uh, provide in exchange for money. Now, does this country need services? This country is a poor third world country even today. The the per capita GDP is less than that of Bangladesh, right? So we definitely need a lot of change in the country. We need a lot of infrastructure building. Our infrastructure is abysmal. We need a lot of infrastructure building. We need a, a great deal of work in the country, reconstruction of the country. We don't realize it because we are used to living in this thing. We think this is, we are, this, this is, the, this is the best place in the world to live in. It's not. It's terrible. The living standards are abysmal. We need an enormous amount of new infrastructure. So all that will require jobs, right? But that is not being done. Why is it not being done? Because the politicians are happy with the thing, with the way things are. So how do we create jobs? First of all, start creating infrastructure in the country, new roads, new highways, new railway lines, new airports, new all of that. Secondly, uh, we need many industries in this country. So start those in industries instead of importing things from abroad. For example, just one example out of, out, of, out of a million is the defense industry. We can start manufacturing all our equipment right here in India. So that will create uh, tens of thousands of jobs. Start shipbuilding. Our, our Navy is in, in a terrible condition. We need at least 300 new ships to keep up with the rise of China. And if we were to, if we are to build 300 new ships in the next 10, 15, 20 years, we'll need a lot of new shipyards, a lot of people working in these places, a lot of people designing these things. That is jobs. We need more planes. We need more submarines. We need more tanks. We need so much defense equipment, artillery and, and whatnot. That requires jobs. 
so if we do and what about tourism tourism is an it creates an entire ecosystem of its own if india starts to unlock its and unleash its tourism potential it's going to add at least a trillion dollars to its economy to its gdp and that is going to create an enormous tourism ecosystem job ecosystem you know lots of new jobs will be created because of that so there is so much we can do in this country there is so much potential but the politicians are happy to to keep on doing this rent seeking what is rent seeking you don't create anything new of value but whatever value exists in the country you try to extract money in exchange for giving the value so it's like you you taking the 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 population hostage so that's what today's politics and leadership so called leadership is all about politicians need to start unleashing reforms in this country that create jobs jobs can be created it's not hard i mean right now the entire agricultural sector is basically what is it it's a vote bank so keep the kisan happy keep giving free things to the kisan and they'll keep voting for you that is the formula right now 58% of india is occupied in agriculture but agriculture accounts for only 16 or 17 or 18% of our gdp that is shocking we can we can modernize agriculture you know and make it way more efficient and free up all this excessive manpower and put them in actual nation building but that's not being done so i'll tell you what needs to be done if i were to if i were to say what needs to be done in one word end corruption so what's the definition of corruption we think that corruption means giving bribes or taking bribes that's not the case when a system does not serve the people it is supposed to serve when the when a system does not carry out its stated function but does something else entirely that is corruption and india's entire governance system is corrupt so we need to end corruption where is the war against corruption where is it we all face corruption in our day to day lives <laughs> whether we speak about it or not don't we any time you interface with a, a, any government well any any organ of the government you going to face corruption corruption it's is what setting india back it is this that that is not allowing in india to unleash its productivity and creativity and and unleash its economy properly right entrepreneurship is almost impossible in this country because you have corruption if you start becoming successful you're going to have to just not just pay taxes you're going to have to pay some additional taxes which are which take a number of various names but it's all corruption and that's why people get the hell out of this country so this needs to end and then only will we be able to create more jobs and to totally free this country and allow the people and the country to realize their full potential so you we need to end corruption where is the battle against corruption where is the war against corruption i don't see any sign of it unfortunately very sad to say mandar says uh, mandar asks should we reorient our education expenditure towards lower education rather than higher education it's an interesting uh, question mandar i would say that a uh, lower education is extremely important because it's the formative stage of any human being's life so what you the ideas that you imbibe during the first 5 10 15 years of your life they they stay with you forever if you if you acquire certain beliefs at that at that stage they're going to stay with you forever almost it's very hard to to deprogram your mind of certain things so yes the uh, 
lower education is extremely important. We need to definitely take it very seriously. But higher education is what prepares, with, which creates the final product, right? So if you are to acquire skills that have real world value, it's all about higher education. So I, what I would say is that both are equally important. But if we were to start reforms, genuine reforms in, in education in our country, it has to start at the lower level, at the lower education level. Because that's how, see, if you try and impose certain reforms at the higher education level, but those students are already conditioned in certain ways, then they are going to reject those new ideas and thoughts and they, they're not going to do well. So it this reform process has to start at the very lowest level. And you should give, we need to give it about 10 or 20 years for it to go through and, uh, and percolate through the entire education system. So it's not a one week or one month or one year process. It's it's, it takes a generation to achieve genuine, genuine lasting change. So I would say that we need to reorient our reformative. Uh, if we were, if the government would someday wake up and, and try and do genuine reforms, it should start at the lowest level. And then it should go progressively upwards in a logical, iterative manner. But I would say that we need to allocate expenditure equally to the lower education system as well as the higher education system because both are equally important for the country. It's all about the national interest. So if the individual does well, the nation also does well. And that's how it works. So it's about the individual's interest and, and by extension, the national interest. Akash asks, what is the prime reason behind the fact that even after more than 70 years, since we got independence, we are being taught the same rigid Macaulay and system of education. Nothing has been done by the government to rectify it. Is it because the governments don't care or because the system is considered as the new standard education in the world or of education in the world or because the left lobby is supporting it with all their might? See, I'll tell you what. I, I am very critical of our politicians, of our leadership, of our government in the field of education and many other things because unless you criticize them, they're not unless there is a significant amount of criticism, they will not change, first of all. Secondly, the thing is this, see, our politicians, our, le our leaders, etc., the people who are in charge of various uh, organs of government, various leadership positions, they have all come through the education system. And they, they, they feel, I would say, that the education system has brought given them success. And therefore, it's a good system. Right? They are all invested in this system. Some of them even benefit and profit from it. I'm not saying everybody. I'm not saying everybody. Some of them definitely do. Right? So there's a great deal of collusion. It's a close-knit, self-serving ecosystem. You have politicians. You have the, uh, the corporate uh, education system. You have the commercial education system. You have the tuition classes, the coaching classes. They are all feeding off each other in some sense, etc. Hmm? So they are very much invested in the system. And even some politicians who will definitely be honest and they have they would have a great deal of integrity, they will also feel that this system is what gave them success. And therefore, they want it to continue. I'll tell you, after a certain age, every human being becomes close-minded. They stop being open to new ideas. I think it's around the age of 40 that people become close-minded. And they simply are not willing to entertain new ideas or something that clashes with their worldview. And that's why we need younger leaders. 
so that is the reason in my opinion why there is so much there is this so much there is so much inertia in this country they are doing nothing to change the system even though there is now a little bit of uh, little bit of i mean some talk about changing or or rectifying some of the more egregious portions of our history syllabus because some of them are just totally blatantly false so there may be some reforms in that but that is not all the entire system is it needs to be reformed so unless and until we find a leader of genuine vision who can push through the reforms the country needs it's going to continue like this that's the way i see it unfortunately as of today at least as of now siddharth asks when you say that education the education system of our country is very poor do you include the colleges universities institutions or do you just mean to say the schooling system that is from the 1st to the 12th grade i mean to say my my friend siddharth that the entire education of system of our country is poor it's 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 defective it's rotten from the very top to the very bottom from the very bottom to the very top everything is terrible in a terrible shape it simply doesn't serve the country it doesn't serve the system it, it doesn't serve the students the stakeholders of any education system are the students and the country the education system of india it doesn't serve the students it doesn't serve the country it serves the politicians and the business people it's a commercial system it's all about, about making money issuing degrees in exchange for money so this is something i went into a great deal of detail in yesterday's episode episode 30 so i would say take a look at that take a listen and i have gone into detail in that so basically the answer to your question is the entire system from top to bottom is decrepit it's corrupt it's rotten it needs to be overhauled completely shribal asks how important is the revival of the ancient vishwavidya vidyalayas universities of this country like vikramshila takshashila will they be of any relevance in this modern world you know what uh, somebody i think there was some effort to revive nalanda i think they have started a new nalanda university or something the problem is that they are using the macaulay in education system in these new revamped universities the same old masters degree phd bachelor's degree that that nonsense they are implementing the colonial corrupt education system in these new universities that they have named after the old ones so what's the point of reviving these ancient universities and enforcing a corrupt colonial commercial syllabus or or system in there there is no point reviving anything unless we first fix the education system the education system should serve the people and the country when we can do that then universities then every university will suddenly start flourishing and start producing superstars and producing what india needs so the solution is not to revive the universities that were destroyed by the by the barbarians yes i would definitely like to see those universities revived but we need to first fix the education system and only then should we try and revive the old universities that were destroyed it would be a great uh it would be a great insult to those universities if one were to implement the corrupt colonial commercial system of education in them so we need to fix the education system first ashutosh asks government jobs versus private jobs versus business what 
do people prefer in other countries like China, Japan, US, etc.? And what's the best direction for Indian students, youths, all that? Yeah. In other countries, people like to go into any job that is best suited for them based upon their aptitudes, skills, interests, and all that. So if it is a government job, they'll go for a government job. If it's a private job, it's a business, entrepreneurship, whatever it is, or freelancing, or gig economy, whatever, whatever is best for you. That's what you want to go into. In other countries, there are lots of options. In India, until very recently, the only option was to be a government bureaucrat. The only stability you would have in life was if you were able to miraculously get a government job somehow. So there are even today very few avenues that that people can take. You can either take a government job or you can go into some IT, IT firm or you can start a small business somewhere. There are very few options available. Let's say somebody is has a great musical talent, great guitarist. What job options does a guitarist have? So they are forced to give up their primary skill and try and become a businessman or a chartered accountant or a school teacher or something, right? So what the government of India needs to do is to open up the economy properly, end corruption, let people start their own businesses, stop harassing entrepreneurs, stop harassing businessmen, right? Business people, let the economy flourish in all directions. Then people will have lots of options to choose from, right? So that's what happen, needs to happen. What is the best direction for Indian students and youths? Do what is best for you. The system doesn't love you. The, the system hates merit. This system identifies and destroys talent and it promotes mediocrity. I would appeal to the students of India, the students who are listening to me right now, please do what is best for you. Do what maximizes your potential. If you have to go abroad and get a good education there, go abroad and get a good education. Be the best person you can be. Achieve your full potential. And maybe someday if you're abroad and India becomes a better country again, then maybe that at that time, you can come back to India and contribute what you can. But first of all, develop yourself. Invest your, in, invest in yourself. If you can get the good education, in your opinion, from in India, do it here. Otherwise, go abroad. Go wherever is best for you. Get your the best education you can acquire and become the best version of yourself. Achieve your full potential. And only if you do that, can you someday someday come back and serve your country? So that's what I would say. That is the best option for you. Saurabh asks, uh, in our country, teacher to student ratio is very poor. Can it be considered to be a problem for Indian education? And how? And if so, how to overcome it? The teacher to student ratio in India is abysmal. Uh, even in good schools, you know, good private schools where you spend lakhs of rupees per year, the, typically the student, the teacher to student ratio will be 1 to 30, 40. And in regular private schools, it will be like one teacher for 60, 70, 80 students. It's terrible, right? You can't teach a mob. <laughs> I mean, it's impossible for a teacher to put anything across to such a large number of students. So there's no individual attention at all. There is no connection. You can just sit in the back of the class and do whatever you want. As long as you just uh, pretend like you're listening, everything is fine. So that is one of the major deficiencies in India's education system. We need more teachers, but first of all, we need to fix the system, make it rational, make it serve the people in the national interest. And then we need more 
teachers more good quality teachers today's teachers are also mediocre so these are the problems we are facing one of the major problems like you pointed out is the terrible abysmal teacher to student ratio so even if you are teaching this this terrible education this false history etc even then you're not able to do it efficiently because there are so many students to take care of so yes it's one of the major problems in india hemant asks what can we do about our existing bad as assets teachers poor colleges schools etc which are just printing degrees and don't care about the students future what can we do we can reform the education system i gave those uh, suggestions yesterday a proper planned thing a uh, set of suggestions i gave yesterday about the lower education system the higher education system that can serve as a as a set of guidelines for anyone who actually is is serious about changing things so we need to first fix the education system in that manner and what do we do about the existing bad assets there are many bad teachers as we all know well what we can do is this so i hate this term because it has very bad connotations it's called reeducation i'm not using it in the chinese perspective in the chinese context or the russian context in china and russia reeducation means basically you know something very bad what i mean is we need to give these non performing assets these bad teachers poor teachers a chance to go through a training process again and and acquire the skills that will actually enable them to give a proper education to the students so we need to give everybody one chance to reform themselves so that's that's what i would term as reeducation in the real sense give them a six month course of of how to teach properly and actually care about the students etc and then give them a chance and see how they do if they still don't do well then well they can go somewhere else and find some other kind of employment or or occupation and once we reform the education system these poor schools and poor colleges will become better because the system will be better so that's what we need to do first of all change the education system reform it thoroughly overhaul it thoroughly and secondly reeducate the teachers give them one chance and induct lots of new young teachers who are who are energetic who are motivated and who actually care about the students and all that right so that's what we need to do adwait asks should the ranking system be demolished because most students get judged by the rank and end up getting demotivated in studying i totally agree with you this ranking system is a consequence of the rat race that india has become india is a land of great artificial scarcity everything is scarce there are very few good colleges very few good schools very few good universities there are very few seats in all these institutions and therefore you need to get the highest possible marks the highest possible rank it is a terrible system it is extraordinarily stressful for students it robs children of their childhood so this ranking system should be abolished or demolished like you say what needs to happen is we need to have a standardization of education throughout the country and everybody should be given either a, 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 a this grading system you know a letter based grading a b c d etc or just say whether they have crossed the minimum threshold of passing or not or either you can give them some kind of percentile ranking so whether you scored in the 90th percentile or 80th percentile or 97th percentile whatever so something like that needs to be incorporated in the education system this ranking system is useless it doesn't indicate any kind of success in later life these students who perform the best in india's education system 
typically perform very poorly in life. And students who are mediocre in the education system, who never got high ranks, they typically do very well in actual life. So this system of ranking and all, it is just, it needs to, it's, it needs to go. It is pointless. Akash asks, what kind of jobs will be there in the near future? Will freelancing dominate the market? So I would say that certain jobs will never go away. Certain jobs are evergreen. They will always stay. Uh, banking. So we will always have banks as far as I can see, unless you have cryptocurrency coming in everywhere and that becomes a de facto standard. But certain jobs like construction, for example, bricklaying, road laying, gardening, uh, carpentry, etc. I think some jobs will always be there. Doctors will always be there as far as I can see, at least the next 20, 30 years, I think. But yes, in, in the near future, the entire job market is going to change. It's all going to be technology driven. So it will be best for everybody to get some sort of tech, technical, technological expertise, get tech savvy, understand the internet, understand computers and acquire some skills. Because yes, in the future, it's not going to be degree driven. It's going to be skills driven. What skills do you have? Can you make a website? Do you know how to code HTML, CSS, Java, JavaScript, Python, various programming skills, various uh, graphic design skills, which is actually art. It's art, but you do it on these uh, software packages like Photoshop or Adobe Premiere Pro or whatever it is, right? Video editing, graphic designing, uh, digital arts, digital painting. So all of these skills are going to be very valuable. Uh, people may be able to earn full-time livelihoods just by freelancing and, and by the gig economy. It may very, very well end up dominating the market. It's very possible. So people will no longer have to go and get a job, a stable job. They'll be able to work from home, especially if they, if they have high quality skills. So it is definitely a very significant possibility. And people will be able to join the creator economy, create various kinds of products, whether it's digital digital products or physical products. And today, because of the reach of the internet, you'll be able to sell all of this online in various platforms. So the future is going to be very different. All the entire education system may very well end up becoming obsolete in a decade or so. Everything is online now. Even learning is online and people are asking themselves already. Why the hell am I paying so much money to learn online when I can get the same or, or even a better education for free online? So things are changing very drastically right now. We are in the in the midst of a revolutionary process of change. This decade is going to transform the entire world. So I think you are right, Akash, that we will definitely see a great uh, increase in freelancing jobs. People may be able to earn excellent livelihoods freelancing. So it, it is definitely a possibility, a strong possibility in the coming years. Anmol asks, amid the notorious malfunctioning of the government agencies, why does ISRO stand out as a rare stellar organization with numerous accomplishments? What should the government learn from these accomplishments to infuse more competence in other agencies or public sector units? Very good question, Anmol. So yes, compared to other government agencies, ISRO has performed very well. It is a very high achieving organization. It uh, has uh, accomplishments that have uh, surpassed the accomplishments of other countries, of many other countries, etc. And I think the reason for this is that the government has 
not imposed an enormous amount of bureaucracy on isro the scientists are allowed to uh, take up projects that the government gives them and they are allowed to basically carry out these projects without too much bureaucratic interference take the lca tejas project the fighter jet project which india has now completed i would say it's still evolving we are creating better versions of the fighter jet etc but it took about 30 more than 3 decades to develop this fighter jet and the reason for that is that the the various governments kept on interfering they would keep on changing the requirements of the fighter jet so if the fighter plane was supposed to be let's say 15 meters long some government agent would come and say no some some government official would come and say no now it has to be 15.5 meters long so the entire thing is to be redesigned then they will say no we need the wings to be this size or something or other because they were getting inducements from foreign companies and foreign countries to buy foreign weaponry and that's why they kept on sabotaging the lca tejas project and when a new government came in came in and they decided to take the the project to completion to its natural uh, logical con- conclusion it happened so our scientists our engineers are very much capable of producing world class products it's just that the government and the bureaucracy keeps interfering and isro i think has not fallen victim to this too much at least so that's why it's able to do well and yet i am disappointed with the with what isro is not being allowed to do isro is a bunch of really talented people brilliant scientists as we know they can do things and do brilliant things so why is isro not being allowed to develop reusable rockets rockets that land on the road it will save so much money right why don't we do it why isn't isro allowed being allowed to develop more powerful rockets that can reach the moon in 3 days instead of 13 instead of 3 3 months why why are we stuck at the pslv and gslv level why can't we have a rocket that's 10 times more powerful why can't we actually compete with the heavyweights like like the americans and the russians or the chinese why is isro not being allowed to develop better technology it has the capability if we can produce a pslv and well, pslv and gslv uh, kind of rocket it's actually trivial to multiply that by 10 and create a rocket that that's 10 times more powerful you just have to attach more boosters and those boosters should ideally be reusable boosters so isro has the capability to do this but it's not being allowed to do it so there is a lack of political will and yet isro is actually a successful organization compared to let's say drdo so why does other why do other organizations and agencies like drdo fail why are they so mediocre even they have the same scientists the same caliber of scientists so what's going wrong so let me tell you a story about drdo so drdo was founded in the year 1958 and coincidentally another agency was also founded in 1958 that was darpa d a r p a let me show you the wikipedia page for darpa hang on just give me a second let me share that that wikipedia page one second all right here we are this is called darpa defense advanced research projects agency darpa it's an american agency it was founded as you can see in 1958 right 63 years ago and it's it has 220 employees darpa and its budget is about 3 and a half billion dollars as of 2019 so this is one of the most brilliant agencies in the world they have developed such incredible technology like the stealth 
aircraft and and so much more and there's so much technology they have developed which is still classified it has not been announced to the world they are the ones i believe who invented the internet gps weather satellites stealth technology voice interfaces the personal computer the internet etc 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 they have developed technology that's out of the world always they have been the leaders in technology development so that's darpa 1958 now let's take a look at drdo also 1958 so remember darpa has 220 employees with a budget of 3 and 1/2 billion dollars roughly let's take a look at drdo also 1958 their budget is about 1.6 billion which is about half of darpa and they have 30000 employees out of which only 5000 are scientists do you see the problem my friends do you see the problem drdo has a similar kind of budget but they have 30000 employees out of which only 5000 are scientists which means 25000 are either bureaucrats or administrators or sweepers or peons or clerks or god knows what so this scientific organization has been turned into an employment generation scheme for people who are not scientists and that and still this budget which is going into it is called a scientific budget even though the majority of it is spent on the salaries of these worthless non performing non scientific employees i'm not saying they are worthless individuals but they don't serve the organization and its purpose its stated purpose the stated purpose of drdo is to produce scientific innovation for india but its actual purpose is employment generation so that's called corruption its actual purpose has been subverted so this is the story of india this is the story of india's government they take everything and turn it into employment generation schemes in the hope of getting more votes etc in the this this thought process is that of mediocrity and that is what is the problem with our leadership and that's why india doesn't do well in science so i think isro does better it it has a, a better structure and it has less government interference and that's why it is doing well so that is something that should be replicated in places like darpa and other places as well and then things will improve ankit asks we have a huge population of people who are not un, who are not graduated and age of about 30s and 40s etc if there's a chance to get them also to be educated or leave them as they are why is it a shameful even if we hate to discuss about it etc yeah many people don't have a degree and yet there are so many people with degrees millions of people with degrees what knowledge do they have see a degree doesn't give you an, any any actual knowledge about the world it just how do you get a degree you get a degree by memorizing things and and writing essays in exams the only skill you learn to acquire a degree is how to pass exams that's the only skill skill you learn you don't actually learn any real skills when you acquire a degree so there are many people who don't have degrees who have better understanding of the world and of and of various uh, domains of knowledge i don't have a history degree and uh, let me see talk to any historian <laughs> so that's my point is that you don't need a degree to actually have knowledge education doesn't mean degree education means actually understanding things acquiring genuine knowledge acquiring wisdom that's education so i i don't care if people don't have degrees in their 30s and 40s it doesn't matter those people may actually have knowledge that degree holders won't have my point is that in today's system in india unless you have have a paper degree you don't get jobs you don't get opportunities and the people who 
are given degrees are not given any actual skills or any actual knowledge that is the problem with india system there are people who don't have degrees who have a great deal of knowledge and you have millions of degree holders who don't have any real knowledge and through no fault of their own it's the system which has done this to them so that's why we need education reforms in this country Mimi asks, is it really important for kids to learn algebra, trigonometry and theorems? Why don't the teachers ever tell kids where or how to use them in daily life? Why do some science teachers in school also teach math and English, etc. in schools? The whole education system is only a business. How are they getting recognition from the education board? Why does the government give recognition, recognition to every other businessman to open schools, colleges these days? How is it even legal? There is no rule of law in the country, by the way. <laughs> Go outside on the street. We are supposed to have traffic rules in the country. Is there any traffic rule being obeyed? Is there, and don't, don't blame the people for this. Is any traffic rule being enforced? If there is no enforcement, people will do whatever they can to get ahead. So that is the problem in this country. There is no rule of law. The law is there only in the in, in the in the papers. It's it's all on paper. It doesn't really exist out there in the real world. So yeah, education is a business. It has become a business. The education boards are all involved in this. Politicians are involved in this. Governments are involved in this. Any businessman, businesswoman can open a school if they have enough money. It's a money generation scheme. It's a money making machine and it's an employment generation scheme. The government has left it all to the business people. Okay, we can't deal with education. You guys start these deemed colleges and deemed universities and God knows what and you give out these paper degrees and that's how we will run the country. It's shameful really. So that's this the situation and that's why I keep emphasizing that we need to have reforms and I've given a way forward um, you know, to as to how to do these reforms. A roadmap. Now, is it really important for kids to learn algebra and trigonometry and calculus and theorems? No. And it comes from, I'm, I am saying this, I am somebody who has acquired a ridiculous amount of knowledge in mathematics because I'm a physicist, right? So I am saying this, that you don't need to learn algebra and trigonometry and theorems and calculus to be successful in real life. All you need to learn is basic arithmetic, addition, subtraction, division, multiplication, fractions, and that's about it. You don't need algebra. All you need is arithmetic. And that you can acquire, that knowledge you can acquire by the, by the fifth standard. That's all you need. So it, the education system is a waste of children's lives. It, it imposes years of worthless and pointless education on them. We don't need any of these topics and subjects, algebra, trigonometry. We need to do away with them. Unless a student actually wants, wants to go into into science or into higher research. In that case, they can learn these things of their own volition. It should not be forced upon them. So, so you're right. I agree with you completely. Pink Line Cabs asks, do you think the education system is the reason why despite more advanced technology, we are not making groundbreaking discoveries or inventions like we did in ancient India or in the time of Einstein, Bohr or Planck? Absolutely. It's the education system that's holding this country back. Yesterday I showed how the Chinese, they instituted a step-by-step a step, uh, program of reforms 
which completely transformed the education system from 1978 onwards. It was a long process, but it was very meticulously and patiently done. So, and they recognized the fact that technology and science is at the core of the development and progress of a country. So today we have advanced technology that we can use. We have this technology. I'm able to talk to you live because of technology. But I am doing it on a platform that's owned by an American company. We are using platforms that are owned by, by other nations. Our government has not given us any platform that unites the country. Our government is not investing in any groundbreaking technology. We are not investing in artificial intelligence. We are not in investing in supercomputing. We are not investing in machine learning, quantum computing, any of these things. We are not allowing Indian companies to emerge that can develop their own social media platforms. We are doing nothing. We are mediocre. We have no ambition. And I, when, I, when I say me, I'm not saying the Indian people. It's the leadership of India. And that is, and 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 we don't have any any investment in science. Where are the particle accelerators? Where are the scientific experimental uh, facilities? Do we have any of those in India? Do we have any any genuinely world-class astronomical observatory? Do we have any institute that's only focused on research in physics and chemistry and material science and biology and biotechnology and all that? We have none of these things. We don't have even have an institute, institute of genetics in India. When we find ancient artifacts and ancient uh, remains of human beings in India, we have to send the DNA samples to Korea and the US to get them sequenced. We don't have a single lab in this country which can do it. It is the government which lacks ambition, which lacks leadership, and that's what's holding India back. So you are right. It's the education system which is, is a symptom of this lack of ambition and lack, lack of uh, a vision for the country. Now think about people like Einstein, Bohr, Planck. Niels Bohr was made a full professor, a head of department by the time he was 31 or 30 or 31 years old because he was the best physicist in the country. Right? So he became the head of department of the, of the best physics institute in his country at the age of 30 or 31 because he was that good. In India, if you are 30 or 31, you will not rise beyond the position of lecturer or reader. You will not be made a full professor unless you're until you're 40 or something. Your achievements, accomplishments, and your quality don't matter. All that matters in India is your seniority and, and uh, how much how many connections you have made. You know, mathematicians have this belief that a genuine world-class mathematician will do his or her best work before the age of 30. Every mathematician believes this, and there's a great deal of data that proves this. Ramanujan is one example. He did his brilliant work before the age of 30. If you take the best mathematicians of, of any era, they have always done their best work before the age of 30. And that's why there is no mathematician in India of any, of any note. Because if you want to go into mathematical research in India, you have to go through the grind and you will not reach, reach a position where you can do research of your own volition without being told what to do before the age of 40 or 45. And that's why India doesn't progress in any of these fields. So yes, you are right. It is the system which is holding this country back. Akash asks, does every field of education have an equal contribution towards the country's growth? Or does science and technology play a more crucial role in deciding of a country's present condition and prospects for, of a bright future? Every field of education is not equal. It's 
the a country's progress always depends only on one thing in its scientific and technological development look at the past 5000 years of world history the civilizations that have emerged ahead of everyone else of every other civilization they have always been ahead of everyone else in science and technology especially applied science and technology in military technology and things like that so it's always science and technology that takes a nation forward yes we need arts we need philosophy we need psychology and various other allied fields etc but they don't take the country forward it is science and technology and research and development that take the country forward and positioning and position the country among the top 2 3 or 5 nations in the world and when it science and technology makes the country prosperous it's then that the other fields prosper it's then that the arts prosper and it's then that you have a renaissance but you can't aim for a renaissance before the country is that prosperous because of science and technology so that's why if you want to bring a genuine turn around in a country's fortunes you have to concentrate on science and technology initially the first 20 30 40 years then everything else can take over but even then science and technology have to be primary Dungar Singh Chauhan asks after listening to your videos when i listen to my teacher teaching about the aryan invasion the alleged aryan invasion and about the rigveda being written about 2500 bc i find her knowledge very rudimentary what should i do should i argue with her which is meaningless because at the end that is what i'm supposed to have to write in the exams so should i argue with her or should i simply observe You see, in India's education system, students are not supposed to ask questions. They are not supposed to talk back to teachers, and they are never supposed to argue. If you argue with your teacher, she's going to make your life miserable because she holds all the power, and you will get less marks. And there is no point arguing with her because you're not going to change her mind. She is a product of the same education system that we are all that we are all going through or or have gone through. And she believes what she believes, and I'm sure she's not a bad person, but she believes that whatever she learned was right. and i don't know how old your teacher is but after a certain age people refuse to change they refuse to entertain new ideas and new possibilities so i would say my friend do not waste your time and energy arguing with her or trying to convince her you know what is right you write your exam write whatever is required to get marks and move on and do something good for your country when you are in the in the in a position to do so so don't waste your time arguing with your teacher it's entirely pointless Vijay 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 Kumar asks what are your views on Japan's career based education system should India adopt it or is the gurukul system better i think see the thing is this uh, in the late 19th century in the second half of, of the 19th century the japanese underwent what is called the meiji reformation so they tried to completely transform the country they tried to copy the western industrial system and they reformed the education as well in that they tried to stamp out buddhism which failed etc so the entire education system that you have in japan this career based performance based education system is a consequence of first of all the meiji reformation and then what happened after the second world war in which japan focused entirely on rebuilding the country at a very rapid rate and they were greatly influenced by the american occupation of the country which still continues by the way 
Japan is still under occupation by the United States. So all of these factors influence their their education system. Their education system is extremely stressful. Okay, but it does work. It does produce high performing people who perform like robots in in the various industries. But it has caused certain things which are not good for Japan. The uh, total fertility rate in Japan, the number of children a couple has, has fallen below the replacement rate. The, uh, the average age of the population of Japan is growing older and older. People are dying alone. Society is breaking up. I mean, there are lots of terrible things happening in Japan. The suicide rates are high among students, etc. So Japan is admirable in the sense that it has embraced modernity while holding on to its ancient roots. It is a beautiful blend of ultra-modernity with traditional values and traditional culture. And that culture, is, as I've discussed before, is mainly Dharmic culture infused and syncretized with Shinto. So my point is that the, they have done a great job of modernizing the country. It has worked very well, but it has caused, it has uh, imposed a very heavy toll on the people, psychologically, mentally, and uh, socially, etc. So I think the Japanese system is not one that I would want to copy. India's ancient system was far better. So we need to try and find ways to revive India's ancient system but with 21st century characteristics and with a very strong emphasis on science and technology and think about the future long term. Om asks, what is the future of reservations? And do you think that in the future, future we would be able to remove reservations and people would let that happen? So I'll tell you what, reservations are a political thing. This was imposed by politicians in order to get, gain votes. And today it's it's gone like it's 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 uh it's run amok, it's it's gone out of control. Reservations are in the in the IITs, more than 60% of the seats are reserved now. So I think this is extremely detrimental for the country. Reservations are harming the country. A country which is not a meritocracy is a country which has no future. It's destroying its own future, right? So I think reservations need to be abolished entirely. And the best way to abolish reservations is to make the entire education system entirely free. Now, I know it can't happen today or tomorrow. It will take a lead period of reforms before we can achieve that. So I would say that we need to have a target of the next 20 years. That 20 years from today, everything should be free. And we need to start making a step-by-step -step plan and implementing that so that 20 years from today, we can have a fully fair and free education system. And when the education system is entirely free, there's no need for reservations, especially when it is, we have enough educational institutions throughout the country to cater to every student. Because today we have this artificial scarcity. There are very few colleges and universities and there are millions of students who need degrees. So the Indian politicians have imposed this culture of artificial scarcity, which dates back to the 50s and 60s and 70s, the socialist days of the Nehruvian regime. So we need to invest in the future of the country by creating this educational infrastructure and doing these reforms. And hopefully if we start today, then 20 years from today, or whenever we start someday, then within 20 years, we can have a completely free education system, in which case we will not need reservations.
and yeah yeah you all you also asked whether people would let that happen well people it is people who are influenced by politics who are in favor of reservations but when you have sufficient number of schools colleges universities and when education is free then reservations will become pointless and there will be no resistance anymore so that it should be the ultimate objective okay indu asks there is a huge discrepancy between the state board standards at least in tamil nadu and that of cbsc assuming it's better do you think this could lead to poor outcomes for the students what do you suggest be done should there be a single standardized education system that the entire nation should be following i spoke about this yesterday and you are right indu there is this terrible discrepancy throughout the country every state has a state board then you have the cbsc board and ntsc board and god knows what other boards so it's a complete hodgepodge it's like we have a number of 15 20 30 50 different small sub nations and sub national identities within the nation and there is no means of actually rationally comparing the results of these different boards so it is extremely harmful and detrimental to the long term future of the country what needs to happen is a single standardized system throughout the country every state should have two languages one is the civilizational language sanskrit the second one is your mother tongue whatever it is in some states you have two three different local languages so let the student choose whatever they want as the other language and then you need to have standardization only one system the same curriculum the same history of course every state should also teach their own local history which is very important for the people to have a sense of their roots so we need to have a proper rational system a standardized system throughout the entire nation that is what will cohesively integrate the country together and it will produce better outcomes for every student so we need to have this at the lower education level up to the 10th standard we need to have this at the higher education level also today in higher education you have the bachelor's degree you have the master's degree then you have the net exam the set exam the slet exam then you have a phd degree in that you have entrance exams and pt exams and even after you get a phd you need to pass net or set or what what not to get a job it is a disastrously ridiculous system it needs to be rationalized it needs to be revamped it needs reforms we need standardization we need standardization standardization in the country so indu you are absolutely right it is it is very detrimental to the long term outcomes for the individuals and for the country it needs to be reformed we need standardization so that's what needs to happen ishwar asks is the new education policy 2020 a good start for improving our edu- existing poor education system as you have said the new policy is just like a bandaid on the shotgun wound so what are the negatives of the new education policy 2020 and what should the government do in order to fix it so i touched upon all the problems that we have in the indian education system yesterday in episode 30 does the so called new education policy 2020 address any of the problems does it address any of the outcomes that we need does it address the fact that the education system does not treat the student as the stakeholders it it serves as an employment generation scheme as a money making machine it doesn't care about the future of the students it doesn't care about the needs of the students it doesn't fulfill the needs of the students it doesn't put the students first it gives wrong information wrong education there is this emphasis on year once a year exams 
and there is this lack of standardization there are so many problems i went into all the problems in detail yesterday in episode 30 take a look at that episode so the new education policy does nothing nothing whatsoever to address any of the real deep rooted problems in india's education system and that's why i will say this again it is absolutely useless so what should the government do to fix it well revamp the education system from scratch from the very beginning it ha- there is no point taking an ex- existing system that is terrible and try to change some small aspects of it the entire system has to go a new proper system has to be brought in you can't do change the entire system in one go so start from the very bottom start from the lowest stage or st- lowest grades of the education system and start reforming reforming from there and give yourself a 20 year period a 20 year plan every year a new step is taken and that's how we reform the system that's what needs to happen but we need some genuine leader who is who has the gumption and the willingness and the fortitude to actually do something like this all right uh, will india become a superpower one day a superpower that can defeat china and europe and the usa if your answer is yes then how much time do you in how much time do you expect this to happen so like i showed yesterday becoming a superpower depends on the kind of education system you have i showed the example of china in great detail how they have positioned themselves how they have brought themselves in a position in which they can now think of genuinely becoming a superpower can india do this can india become a superpower i would say that india will either become a superpower in the next 20 years or it will not be a superpower for the next 100 years the change needs to happen now genuine change not this fake vote vote bank changes not the pandering to the vote banks and all that we need real change it has to start with education it has to start with with the war against corruption it has to start with opening up of the industries and unleashing of the full economic potential of india and so many things need to happen infrastructure building what not that can trigger the economy and trigger of a great growth in the economy of the country so we have 20 years at most it is definitely possible genuinely possible for india to become a genuine superpower in one generation in the next 20 years so my prediction is that india will either become a superpower top 3 nation in the next 20 years or it will not be able to achieve that in the next 100 years that's my prediction and with that my friends we come to the close of these questions let me take a look at what you are asking me in the live chat i will take some live chat questions now okay bobby says if i travel to the netherlands which i have yeah sure even i have traveled there they speak english as well as dutch if i travel to the states they speak english english needs to be incorporated as well as sanskrit have you traveled to china have you traveled to china do they speak chinese uh, do they speak english there 99% of people will not speak english there have you traveled to la france have you gone to france do people speak english there they will refuse to speak english even if they know english they will speak to you in french unless you have big wads of greenbacks in that case they'll speak to you in english just to get your money there is a certain amount of cultural and civilizational pride in certain nations go to japan do people speak english there no they speak japanese 
go to korea how many english speaking people do you find there let's not take the example of europe and the united states india is is not a colony of the, of the of of european nations anymore india is a civilization india is going to rise as a, as a civilization again and the civilizational language of the whole of asia for thousands of years was sanskrit i do not need english english is an inferior language it's a colonial language it is holding india back we need to reject english we need to promote sanskrit worldwide if india becomes a superpower it needs to spread sanskrit worldwide and make sanskrit the universal international lingua franca and the language of science and education that's what needs to happen reject english and it's it's i know it's it's ironical that i am saying this in english you see my generation and the present generation we have been put through this education system in which english is the primary language so it is unfortunate that we employ english and we are comfortable with the, with english to this extent and that is something i understand i recognize this fact and i would like the future generations to not be put through this trauma so the future generations need to learn sanskrit and their mother tongue whatever the local language is reject english okay this has nothing to do with education but let me answer it rishi says asks can india bangladesh and pakistan unite in the future in the future i would like the whole of india the whole of the indian subcontinent to unite as of today it's not possible there are too many cultural and religious differences it's not going to be possible in the next 20 30 50 years but we can start putting the things in place for this to happen and future generations hopefully can see a reuni- reunified civilization in the future but as of today it's not possible in the future it is possible yes Harsha Barman says when i went to japan the prayers in the shrines were written in sanskrit like i said sanskrit is the original language of high civilization and it and sanskrit sanskrit was never imposed upon the japanese right it was not imposed in a, in a colonial way it was they absorbed it they accepted it they were happy to have it so that is the real status of sanskrit and that's why i keep on saying that we need to reinstate sanskrit as our civilizational language somya asks should army service be compulsory well we have 1.3 billion people and we have an army which has a strength of about a million if everybody were to let's say we are trying to put every child through one year of compulsory army service how will they be able to accommodate so many people right we have such an enormous population so it is not uh, logistically um, feasible right it's not practical for everyone to have compulsory army service and in the case of israel they have a very small population so it's possible in the case of india it's very difficult if people are willing to do one year of compuls- of of army service then maybe they can enter, enter a lottery or something and maybe we can take a million per year or something something like that if if we want to consider it but compulsory army army service is not practical unfortunately it is definitely desirable that everybody should get an experience of actual uh military training and and some kind of at least mock combat experience that would be good for sure but 
it is not practical because of our enormous population. Ishan, uh, Ishan, Ishan asks, should Indian students go abroad to study? Indian students should do whatever is necessary for them to succeed in life. If you have to go abroad and to get a better education, then go abroad and get a better education. If you have to settle abroad, go settle abroad. And one day when India is a far better country, then if you are in a good position, you can return and offer your services and your contribution to the country. But to do that, to be valuable to your civilization, you have to first acquire the tools to do so. You have to reach your full potential. You have to become the best version of yourself. So do whatever it takes right now. When you are 15 years old, when you are 20 years old, when you are a teenager, when you are in the early 20s, do whatever it takes to become the best version of yourself. Go abroad, settle abroad, doesn't matter. But remember where your true home is. And when the chance comes, do come and serve the country. Uh, Pawan asks, do our leaders have the ambition to change the education system? Well, I am not one of your leaders. So <laughs> I guess they don't. As of today, at least we, we don't see that. We have this, I mean, this uh, new education policy or whatever it's called, NEP, which is clearly written by bureaucrats. It does nothing really. So unfortunately, as of today, as of 2021, July, it doesn't look like we have a leader who has the ambition or the or the vision to change the education system. Maybe in August or September, maybe we may have somebody. I don't know. As of today, we don't have somebody who does this. Okay, Rishu says, uh, he's, he's talking to somebody. We can start a startup which provides old indigenous education system. Well, you know, the thing about startups is that they have to be financially successful. They have to be economically successful. They have to, uh, they are sustainable only if they bring in profits, quarter upon quarter profits. And the old Indian education system was based upon no profits. It was subsidized by the state. It was subsidized by the community. It was the king or the queen who contributed sufficient funds to keep it running. So there was no profit in it. There was, they did not ever ask students for fees. The education was completely free. And that is the entire complete antithesis of a startup. A startup is all about profits. So that is not the way to go about it. Unfortunately, I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm, I'm glad you're thinking differently. But a proper education system, especially the ancient Indian education system, was always subsidized and supported by the state, by the king, by the civilization, by the community, everybody pitched in. That is the reason why whenever we go to temples, we, we give some kind of donation there. The majority of that money was used for the upkeep of the education, of the education system, because temples were the center of education. This system was destroyed by the British about 150, 200 years ago, but we still haven't forgotten the act of donating contributing money to temples and now that money is being stolen by the by the government and being used for secular purposes which is such a shame
Am I randomly picking comments from live chat? Yes, now I am. Yes. You have a question? Ask me. I'll try and pick it up. Dhruv asks, why do uneducated people hold ministries in India? It's because politics runs on the principle of power. You may be uneducated, but you have power, political power. You know how to get votes. You know how to get people on the streets. You know how to get things done. You know how to effect change politically. That gives you power. If you have power, you have political currency. Power is the currency of politics. Education doesn't matter. Unfortunately, that's the system we have. And it's very funny to see that image you have there. <laughs> so that's that's the problem, you see. Okay, let me take a couple more questions. about education how okay prithvi asks how can we educate ourselves if we don't have enough money to study abroad that is unfortunate most of us don't have money the, i mean the per capita income in india is is quite less it's very hard for parents in india to send their children abroad unless they are able to gain a scholarship or something which is like which is which doesn't happen all the time so if you don't have enough money to study abroad, get an education in India, do the best you can, the best school, university, college, whatever you can get into, get your education, get your degree, and then see how it goes and keep on educating yourself outside of the education system. Gain some actual skills. I would always say that gain some technical skills, some computational skills, some high-tech skills, you know, because technology is the future. So try and get some skills, gain some skills online, which are not part of the education system, which are beyond your degree. But those skills can always come in handy. When you are young, you should acquire as many skills and as many experiences as possible. So it doesn't matter if you don't have enough money to go abroad. Don't be discouraged. The world is changing. In the future, in the very, very uh, short-term future, we're going to see that uh, employment and jobs will depend more and more on skills. They're going to place more and more priority on skills. Many big companies in the US are now no longer requiring that people have degrees. All they see is what skills you have, what's the kind of portfolio you've built up. So things are going to change very soon. So don't be discouraged. Keep, stay positive and acquire and do the best you can with whatever resources you have. And the, the world is your oyster in the future. Okay, I'll take one more question. Praveen asks, do we need entrance exams like JE Maths um, for prime colleges or should there be any other means for admission? I think we need to have just one standard exam. One standard exam for the, for, depending on whatever stream you've chosen, whether you've chosen a scientific stream, an engineering stream or whatever, there needs to be just one common entrance exam. And depending on the percentile or whatever you got, you should be able to get admission in various schools, various colleges, universities, etc. We have so many entrance exams, it becomes an impossible burden for children, for, for students. So we need rationalization of the education system. As of today, this is what we have so if you want to succeed, you have to go through it. I would not, I am not by any means trying to tell you that you should not go study for the GE or whatever. As of today, you have to. So do it. 
what i'm talking about is what we should do in the future long term in the next 5 10 20 years as of today you have to go through this unfortunately so do it do the best you can okay one last question what do we have Neeraj Kumar Singh asks do, do you think that in the in order to improve the education system one party nation is better than multi party nation as one party nation can enforce the long term vision well what you are saying well you you you're right in a sense because the chinese are a one party nation they are a dictatorship they are a totalitarian pseudo marxist pseudo imperialistic uh, nation and they have one party which is why they are able to enforce a long term vision in india every 5 years or whatever period of time it takes for a new political dispensation to come to power things keep changing things keep changing there is no continuity there is no long term vision so yes when a country is in a state like the like india is in it's a it's a underdeveloped country country with a great deal of poverty great deal of uh, problems it does help if you have political stability for a, about a period of about 20 years now i am not advocating any form of dictatorship i abhor dictatorship but we need to find some solution to 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 ensure there is political continuity and there is an there is a, a push in the direction of the long term national interest In, in in the long in the long term in the end it doesn't matter whether you have a one party nation multi party nation all that matters is whether the national interest is being served and if the if the national interest is being served by a one party nation i am happy with it if it is being served by a multi party system i'm happy with that as well there are many ways like they say to skin a cat right it doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice that was, that's what the chinese say so we need to find a solution to what we have right up, right now the political system is unstable and it it basically does not prioritize the long term interests of the nation so that needs to change okay my friends thank you so much for watching thank you so much for participating this was great talking about education thank you so much and i will see you very soon in the next episode have a good night have a good day take care bye